God, at first glance, uh, we might be tempted to just skip through what we're going to read here in just a few moments. But God, together, we just kind of take a deep breath and we recognize that this is your day, this is your word, and there's not a word in here, not a letter that doesn't mean something unique for us. Nothing in here that you didn't intend, nothing in here that's like kind of boring. God, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, every single part of it, even this part today. Speak to us, O God, in Christ's name. Amen. So how many of you would immediately recognize these words? Raise your hand when you recognize these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world would be registered. All right, so if you grew up in church or if you know your Bible, you know that that's the beginning of Jesus' birth story from the book of Luke. And if you know your Bible really well, you know that that's Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, this is what my family would have read, not would have read, but did read around the Christmas tree every year growing up. And, and probably when I uh, go back to Phoenix for Christmas on Christmas Day, uh, my family and I will act with, with my parents, my brother and sister and, and my brother's wife and their kids. We'll celebrate on New Year's Day. We'll celebrate Christmas because uh, we'll celebrate Christmas Day with Amy's family. This is all personal information. It's not in my notes, but I'm just telling you. Um, and so on New Year's Day, this is what we'll sit around and read. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And, and, and we'll read the entire birth narrative from Luke 2, verse 1. We'll get there next week, I promise. But, but listen, um, what if my dad on, on New Year's Day or on Christmas Day uh, said to our family, hey, let's just skip all the setup and let's get to the conclusion. Let's just skip all the setup. Let's just skip all the context. Let's get to the pinnacle of Luke's birth narrative. Let's get to the climax of the story. Let's get to Luke's grand finale, if you will. And if my dad wanted to get to Luke's grand finale, he would go to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. This is the pinnacle. This is the zenith. This is the tip top, if you will, of Luke's birth narrative. And it goes like this. Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah. Are you excited yet? The son of Joanan, the son of Resa the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. Picture us sitting around a Christmas tree waiting to open presents, and my dad's reading this. Verse 28, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim. The intensity is just building. You can feel it. The son of Mal 
Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Mathatha, Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. How many sons are there? The son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. This is Luke's grand finale. Verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, we're almost done, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. How bad would that have been? I mean, we're in church and I just read the Bible and that was bad, wasn't it? It was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to check out here. And, and, and picture me at like eight years old uh, around the tree waiting to open up Christmas presents and my dad reads this. This is why he started in Luke 2, verse 1, because he would have had an angry mob on his hands, right? With my sister and my brother and me. But it's interesting. Now listen close. Matthew begins his birth narrative with a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter one, verse one, begins with a genealogy. This is Matthew's attention grabber from the start. This is how Matthew hooks his readers from the beginning. And for Luke, this is after all of, of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary and John the Baptist and angels and wise men and shepherds and mangers. This is the pinnacle this is the zenith. It wasn't just included in Matthew and Luke. It was highlighted. It was featured, the genealogy of Jesus. So if you're like me and you believe that God breathed these words out onto a page, then we have to ask ourselves this really simple question. Why in the name of thunder would you put that in there? Why waste words on boring genealogies? And look, if you're not a church person and you don't believe this is the inspired word of God, these authors had a choice, didn't they? They could include exciting stuff and they could eliminate or omit boring stuff if they wanted to. Why not eliminate that? That's like the world's most boring thing I've ever read. Why in the world is it there? Here's our bottom line truth for today. It's this, that God and Luke would both tell you that the genealogy of Jesus, his story is of critical importance for understanding who he is and what he came to do. The genealogy of Jesus, his story is of critical importance for understanding who he is and what he came to do. Listen, friends, we simply cannot understand the richness and depth of the incarnate son of God's mission and person unless we understand the story into which he was born. And that entire story is reflected in his genealogy. So today we're going to tell the uh, story of Jesus. We're going to tell the story of his genealogy from beginning to end. And we'll start where it begins with pre-existent God before the beginning of time. 
And I need you to know that today's message is a bit different. It's a bit of our shift from our norm here at Bayview Glen. Here's a couple things we try to do in preaching here. One is we try to give you some really applicable, really practical tools that you can walk away with and, and apply to, to family dinner tonight or to school or work tomorrow or to your marriage or whatever. The other thing that we try to do is we try to not add unnecessary complications to God's really simple truths. We believe that God intended us to understand the scripture. So we try not to overcomplicate it. I want you to know that today this message will be neither of those things. <laughs> neither immediately ap- ap- applicable nor really simple to understand. As we dig into this together, we're going to find that it gets richer, more compelling, and more captivating at every layer. It unfolds over countless generations. The story involves betrayal, adultery, murder, unrequited love, friendship, marriage, children, kingdoms, war, and all the best elements of those three-hour-long epic movies that you and I pay $12 to go see. Every bit of the genealogy of Jesus and his story involves those things. And it may not be immediately applicable. And it may not be extremely simple. But the genealogy of Jesus is critical because it tells the story of God's big redemptive plan. The entire Old Testament from beginning to end. So today, I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't ask you to do very often, and that's put away your Bibles. If you want to hang on to it for comfort, that's fine. That's okay. Don't panic. But I just want you to hear the story of Jesus. I want you to hear his genealogy from beginning to end. I want you to hear the story that he was born into and see who he is and what he came to do within the context of God's redemptive plan. The Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God divided the light from the dark. And he called the light day and he called the dark night. And God continued to create. He created sun and moon and stars and planets He divided the waters and he said, let land come forth. And he put animals on the land. He put fish in the sea and he put birds in the air. And all that we can see and all that we can't see was created by the very act and hand and will of God. He breathed it into existence. And then God came to the pinnacle of his creation. Again, the zenith, his crown jewel. And God said, let us make man. In our own image, and God created male and female and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. God placed Adam and Eve in the world that he had created for them. He gave them a task. He walked with them. He loved them. He was their God, but it didn't last. The woman was tempted to walk away from God, and she did. The man was not far behind Each of them rebelled against God's perfect plan. They put themselves in God's place. They worshiped self rather than God. The scripture says, proclaiming to be wise, they became fools and earned for themselves the due penalty for their rebellion, death, both spiritual and physical. 
Now, this wouldn't make much difference to you and me today, except that we inherited that same spirit of rebellion from our first parents. That same sin nature, that same propensity to disobey, that same self-worship, and unfortunately, the very same consequences. Death, both physical and spiritual. The world still groans under the curse of Adam. Well, Adam and Eve... The first man and woman had children, two boys named Cain and Abel. One day, both Cain and Abel brought their own sacrifices to God. Abel offered his sacrifice in faith and God accepted it. Cain did not and God rejected it. Abel rejoiced. Cain got jealous and killed his brother. So in Genesis 4.10, God proclaims that Abel's blood, the slain brother, cries out from the ground and declares condemnation for Cain. So Cain, just like his dad, ran from his creator. He settled in Nod, east of Eden. Generations later, first humans had grown to an entire race, but they had not grown past the curse of Adam. And humanity would see the curse of Adam totally unbridled. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 tells us that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen close. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God judged humanity and sent a flood that carried out the death sentence that Adam had earned. But in his mercy, God allowed for a man named Noah and his family to pass through the waters of judgment. God, rich in mercy, instituted a plan for restoration, a plan for redemption, a plan of grace. The flood subsided. Noah and his family got off the boat and settled and began to repopulate the earth. The human race grew again. And from that still corrupted human race, God called a man named Abram to leave his country, his people, and his father's household to follow God in faith. And by faith, Abram followed God. When Abraham was 99 years old and his wife Sarah was 90, they had no children and they were well past childbearing years. Yet God promised a son. But not only did God promise a son, that he, but he promised that Abraham would be the father of multitudes. He said, Abraham, your descendants will be like the number of sand on the seashore, grains of sand on the seashore. That Your descendants will be like the number of stars in the sky. And Abraham, at almost 100, did exactly what you and I would do. He laughed. But God kept his promise and gave Abraham a son. God named the boy Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac grew. God called Abraham again. This time, God's request of Abraham would take far more faith. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, which I shall tell you, and by faith, Abraham trusted God with his son and led the boy up Mount Moriah. Just before Abraham was to carry out God's request, God spoke again. 
Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God provided a ram for sacrifice. Isaac's life was spared. He was, in fact, the child of promise. And Isaac grew and had children of his own, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 32 tells us that Isaac's son Jacob had his own face-to-face experience with God and called the place Peniel, which means the face of God. God blessed Jacob that day and changed his name to Israel. Jacob's sons fathered 12 tribes. So according to God's promise, from the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel continued to grow. Now, if Jacob was here today, he would tell you that Joseph was his favorite son, if he was being honest. So Joseph's brothers got jealous and sold their brother Joseph into slavery. But Joseph remained faithful to Yahweh. And God eventually elevated Joseph to second in command in Egypt. A famine hit. God's people, the sons of Abraham, the sons of Isaac, the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel were starving. So they went to the only place they knew to go, Egypt. And they begged the brother that they had sold into slavery years before for food. Joseph at the right hand of the king in Egypt, forgave his brothers and provided food for God's people. What his brothers had intended for evil, God meant for good, and God accomplished his purpose in Joseph. The nation of Israel continued to grow, but new pharaohs meant new policies, new attitudes, new cultures. What Joseph had done to protect Egypt and save them from the famine was forgotten about. And the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years until God sent a redeemer named Moses. Moses, God said, Moses. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh refused. So God sent plagues, nine of them. Locusts, gnats, frogs, hail, boil, pestilence. And Pharaoh still wouldn't budge. So God sent a tenth and final plague. God told the nation of Israel, take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and sacrifice it. Smear the lamb's blood on the doorposts of your homes. So when God's angel of death carries out God's judgment on Egypt and takes the firstborn from every household, he will pass over your homes and your lives will be spared. So they did as God said, and the blood of the Passover lamb proved sufficient for escaping the judgment of God. Moses continued to lead God's people out of Egypt and toward the land that God had promised Abraham. Though Israel was perpetually faithless, God was gracious and faithful. God provided bread from heaven called manna. It was Israel's daily sustenance from God. God gave Moses the law that declared his passion for his people, a call to worship him alone and declared his unrelenting grace. God established a day of restoration called the Sabbath so that the people could find rest and renewal in him. 
God stipulated the construction of a mobile tent called the tabernacle, where the very presence and glory of God dwelt. When Israel needed a substitute to stand in their place and accept the penalty that Adam earned and the penalty that they had earned as well, God established a sacrificial system by which the sins of the people were transferred onto a spotless, perfect lamb. When Israel needed a delegate to go before the holiness of God and perform the sacrifice on their behalf, God established the priesthood through the line of Moses' brother Aaron. The priest served as Israel's representatives before God. When Israel needed a seasonal marker of God's grace, God called for a year of jubilee in which debts were forgiven and captives were set free. And when God finally saw fit, he sent a successor for Moses named Joshua. And Joshua finally led those 12 tribes descended from Abraham, from Isaac and Jacob into the land God promised. Israel finally inhabited the promised land after generations of waiting, but God wasn't finished. He wanted a kingdom, a throne. So God raised up a young humble shepherd boy from a no-name town called Bethlehem to be king in Israel. And King David flourished. He unified the once disconnected tribes. He established Israel's capital in Jerusalem. He increased Israel's boundaries from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. He brought prosperity to the nation. He brought the tablets on which God had written his law for Moses back to the capital city of Jerusalem. And he wrote the nation's favorite worship songs. And God promised David an everlasting kingdom, a throne that would remain forever. But David, like the others, fell. He made a poor choice and he attempted to conceal his choice with another poor choice and then another poor choice and then another. And when David died and his, and his son Solomon took the throne, the kingdom was already headed towards an inevitable bitter end. During King Solomon's reign, God established the permanent temple that replaced the temporary tabernacle. God's presence dwelt there, just as it did in the tabernacle. Jerusalem was the epicenter of the Hebrew world, but again, it did not last. As always, the nation strayed and division took the place of unity. What were once 12 unified tribes became two tribes of Judah in the south and 10 tribes of Israel in the north. God sent prophets like Isaiah, one after another after another, to call Israel back to him. He warned them. He pleaded with them. His grace was unrelenting, but Israel did not listen. They ignored the prophets. They forgot God's law, and they abandoned Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. The God who had been so faithful for generations was now a distant memory. The temple was destroyed and Jerusalem lay in ruins in 586 BC. The nation of Israel was exiled from its own land to a pagan nation called Babylon and the dream was over. But God was faithful and he raised up more prophets like Ezra and Nehemiah that called the people to repentance. They rebuilt Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple and for a time, hope was renewed. But you saw this coming. 
it did not last. The second temple era lacked the spiritual vitality of the first. Israel still couldn't seem to remain faithful to Yahweh, and Israel fell away again. Now listen close. It was at this time in God's redemptive history, when it had reached a pinnacle, that the talk of a chosen one began to gain momentum in Israel. The concept of a Messiah had been part of the Hebrew faith for generations. But now, having endured slavery in Egypt, having endured captivity in Babylon, having endured oppression in Rome, it was as if Israel was audibly groaning for a forgiver like Joseph, a redeemer like Moses, and a king like David. They longed for the presence of God to dwell with them physically as it had in the days of the tabernacle. They longed for temple worship to be restored so that they could return to sacrifices and a priesthood and right worship of Yahweh. They longed for a prophetic voice to call them back to God after God had been silent for nearly 500 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And it is from this longing that the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Malachi writes this, God's words to Israel, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring their offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And Israel waited. You ever watch uh, those home renovation shows on TV? I, I love those shows. You know, the best part of that show, it's, it's not really when the house is complete, is it? It's not really when the house is done. The best part of the show is when the family that the house was built for takes occupancy, right? And there's joy and love and renewal and hope. I mean, the house itself, the physical house is really, really special, but it's the occupants of the home that make the house a home, right? And when all is said and done after that hour-long home renovation show, you know that the story doesn't end after that hour, does it? Once the cameras turn off and once the show is over, once that family takes occupancy, there'll be new babies born. There'll be anniversaries and celebrations. It's much more about the new life that will take place in the house than it is about the house itself. And the families that typically occupy those homes, they're like the most hospitable people in the world, aren't they? Because they show that big crane shot of their whole neighborhood at the end of the show. And it's like hundreds or thousands of people that are all coming to celebrate and all coming to rejoice with the family that's taken occupancy of this home. So listen. In the same way, God has prepared a house for his people. And he had been doing so for thousands of years. Every room was furnished just so. The landscaping was immaculate. The kitchen was fully stocked 
we were just waiting for the occupant to show up. So the house could become a home. So that he could invite his guests from every nook and cranny of the world to enjoy the home that God had prepared. So look, when Luke takes great pains to locate his Jesus story firmly within an Old Testament context, when the pinnacle of his Jesus story is a boring genealogy, he is pleading with you and me to see that Jesus is the person that God's redemptive plan was built for. He is now here. He's the banquet host. He occupies the house. He is ready and waiting for his guests to come in and join him in the home that is God's grand redemptive plan. Each piece of Hebrew history, each piece of God's redemptive plan from pre-existent God on to Jesus, each character in the nation of Israel, and yes, the nation of Israel itself, were all a shadow of what was to come. They were just a piece of the house that God was building and was always meant for Jesus. And this is the home that Jesus invites us into called God's Big plan for redemption. So Jesus comes along and fulfills every covenant, every prophecy, every role of the entire Old Testament and becomes a new and better promise for you and me. And I want you to see today that the New Testament and the book of Luke takes great pains to show us how Jesus fulfills all of these promises. Look up here on the screen. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Through Adam, we inherited corruption and death. In Christ, we inherit renewal and eternal life. Jesus is the true and better Abel. He was innocent, but he was slain for our acquittal. And now his blood cries out for our freedom and not for our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Noah because our baptism in him allows us to pass through the waters of eternal judgment and into the free life that he offers. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, our heavenly father who offers a circumcision of the heart. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who offered himself as a sacrifice, not on a mount called Moriah, but on a mount called Golgotha. And we can say that God loves us and we know for sure because he did not withhold his son, his only son, from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who offers us living water so we'll never thirst again. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king, ready and willing to extend forgiveness and provide spiritual food to all those who have been in famine. Jesus is the true and better Moses who serves as the redeemer of God's people from slavery and the mediator of the new covenant, a bridge between man and God. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. He was slain for our transgressions. His blood smeared on the doorposts of our lives so that God's judgment passes over you and me. Jesus is the true and better manna. This is what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. He's a provision of daily spiritual food that eternally fills those who partake of him. 
Jesus is the true and better law in that he does not abolish the law. He does not tear down the house, but he comes to fulfill it and occupy it on our behalf and institutes a law of love. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath and invites us into God's eternal rest. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle in that God tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice, not made over and over, but once for all, a sacrifice that clears guilt and transgressions for all time. Jesus is the true and better priest, eternally interceding for us, able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses and giving us access to God's throne of grace. Jesus is the true and better year of jubilee, proclaiming spiritual freedom for captives and healing for all who find refuge in him. Jesus is the true and better Joshua, able to lead God's people into the promised eternal rest of God. Jesus is the true and better temple. Though the old temple is destroyed, Jesus, by his spirit, makes our bodies God's living temple where we're able to worship him in spirit and truth. When Israel failed to yield fruit for God, Jesus in John 15 says, I am the true, what? Vine that empowers us to yield fruit for God, fruit that will last. Jesus is the true and better prophet, speaking God's truth, justice, and grace in and through his very life. And for our purposes today, Jesus is the true king and his is the true kingdom because he was born in the city of David from the lineage of David and thus is the rightful heir to the eternal throne of David where he sits and rules and reigns even now. He is the king of kings, the fulfillment of all that was spoken through the entire Old Testament, the rightful occupant of the house of God's redemptive plan, and he invites us in to celebrate at his banquet table today. And that is why the genealogy of Jesus matters. Let's pray. God, you are exalted and lifted up and there is nobody like you. God, you exalt the humble and you depose kings and with Mary's song, we agree that you have done all of these things and we store them up and treasure them in our heart. Jesus, we claim and proclaim today that you are the true Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the second Adam and you give us new life. You're the true temple the true tabernacle, the true and better law, the true and better Isaac. Jesus, you are the true and better David and you rule and reign. And God, your promise that David's throne and kingdom would be eternal stands today. Because Jesus, that's the lineage you came from and you sit on that throne. God, now we respond in worship. Now we respond by receiving communion. Now we remember, God, that your son Jesus was celebrating Passover when he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples. When he took a cup and blessed it and gave it to his disciples and claimed that he was the true and better Passover lamb slain for our transgressions and smeared on the doorposts of our life. So we remember, we rejoice, and we praise you. 
Together the people of God said, amen. As we conclude our worship this morning, our ushers are going to stand and go to the back. They're going to gather some communion elements for us and they're going to come forward. And I would invite you to do a couple of things. If, if, you, if you would say, you know what, I'm not a Christ follower. I'm just checking this Jesus thing out, just checking this spirituality thing out. I would just invite you to pass that tray right on by you. Just keep it moving down the row. Uh, this is for those who, who say, you know what, I'm a Christ follower and, and I've given my life to him. And for those of you who, who are Christ followers, who, who love Jesus and call yourself his disciple, this is our opportunity to remember, to rejoice, to thank him, and to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again by taking together, eating together, these symbols of the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for us, the true and better Passover lamb. As we do this, I would invite you to just go before the Lord and confess any known sin to him. Enjoy his forgiveness and grace. When that tray comes by you, just take a little piece of bread and a little cup, hang on to it, and we'll respond uh, by receiving the elements together here in a few moments. As we do that, as our ushers come forward, Melissa's gonna sing for us, and I just invite you to reflect.
just saying those very interesting words, sweet little Jesus boy, sweet little holy child, born a long time ago. We didn't know who you was, but now we do. The true and better sacrifice once for all, the true and better Passover lamb smeared on the doorposts of our lives so that God's judgment passes over the true and better prophet, the true and better covenant, the true and better law. And on the night that Jesus was celebrating that Passover meal with his disciples, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this bread represents my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. After dinner, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup represents a new covenant. It's sealed by my blood. Take, drink, and remember me. Let's remember the Lord together. The Bible tells us that every time we do this, the body of Christ, the family of God, the community of faith, we proclaim his death until he comes again. As the band and worship team make their way back up, we're just going to respond together by singing a couple of songs of worship. We're going to start with In Christ Alone. So let's stand together and turn our hearts towards him and respond by giving him the glory that he's due. 